Welcome to the Lexington Public Library's Tales from the Kentucky Room podcast, where we discuss everything Lexington and Fayette County history. I'm Miriam, and in each episode of this podcast, we will feature a guest that will share a piece of local history. So thank you for tuning in and enjoy. Good day, everybody. Thank you for joining us. Today, we're going to have Renette Jones talk to us about the Notable Kentucky African-American Database. Renette Jones has been with the University of Kentucky for more than 30 years. She is currently a librarian in the Special Collections Research Center. She and her fellow librarian, Rob Aiken, are the co-founders and co-managers of the Notable Kentucky African-Americans Database. This is a free online reference tool developed in 2003 that receives over 200,000 hits each year. In 2009, the database won the Reference Users Services Association, the Gale Cengage Learning Award of Excellence, which is a prestigious award in the reference library world. Burnett has also written many library articles, and she is the author of the 2002 title, Library Service to African Americans in Kentucky. And she is also the co-author of the 1991 title, Special Libraries of the Bluegrass. Renette Jones is also co-chair of the community organization Bluegrass Black Pride, Inc. Each year, the group recognizes trailblazers and affiliates who have contributed to the advocacy, education, and equity of the African-American LGBTQ communities in Lexington, Fayette County region. Welcome, Renette. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Well, to start off, can you just give us a brief overview of what the database is? Yes. NKAA, which is the acronym, started okay. in 2003. It was a web page. Rob Aiken and I started. It was just a simple web page. Mm-hmm. We quickly grew to where we had to turn it into a database, and that mm-hmm. was in 2007. In 2009, we won the Gale Cengage Award that uh-huh. you mentioned. Since then, uh, we have moved the database to the Omeka database platform. Wow. That was in 2017, so our numbers have continued to increase. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is not something that I learned in library school. <laughs> no. um, they've probably since added it to the library school <laughs> program. It was the brainchild of being in reference, which is my first job at UK, uh, in the UK libraries, I should say, yeah. not necessarily UK. And I noticed that African-Americans would come up to the desk and ask about these individuals that I'd never heard of. Uh-huh. And we had nothing. We said we had nothing. Uh UK doesn't have a long history of having African-American librarians either. So we'd send them special collections, and they come back. Special collections didn't have anything. So if you were asking for someone other than Muhammad Ali, Georgian Powers, or one of the more well-known jockeys such as Wingfield, you didn't get very far. So over the years, um, I started jotting down the names that they would ask for and just doing a bit of research. And before long, I realized I had a whole box of notes in the garage. I had a sick period where I thought, mm, my days are numbered. So I had my wife bring the computer and put it in the bed. Uh-huh. And I called Rob and said, Rob, come on, let's do this database. Let's do this website at the uh-huh. time. And he said, did you get permission? And I'm like, yeah, something. And he took <laughs> that to of. me. <laughs> sort of. We didn't ask anybody. We asked nobody. We just did it. And it took off. Wow. It took off. Uh, The first year, we had maybe 100 users a day. It was Mm -hmm. just a simple web page. I thought, ooh, that's a lot. And we thought we were smoking, let me tell you. Yeah, back okay. well, I mean, I'm sure yeah. for that, for you guys just started. I mean, 100 visitors to the website, that's that's pretty good. And before long, we had people sending us stuff from all mm-hmm. over the U.S. And it has to do with the education system and the mm-hmm. library systems that took place in Kentucky. Because mm-hmm. Kentucky had some of the first schools on this side of the Allegheny Mountains. We had early library education, and we had an early library education for African Americans. Yeah. So all this came together, and we had people... Sending us information. So the first year we got about 500 
submissions. Wow. And Rod, yeah, it was just, you know, we were just going to do a simple web page. We were going to update once every three, four, maybe six months. Mm -hmm. And it took on a life of its own. Wow. So it was kind of... Wow, what'd you get yourself into kind of thing? Yeah, Rob said that. I didn't. <laughs> I was just like, yeah. yeah. But Rob was like, okay. That's exciting. It is exciting. What yeah. are we going to do here? And I was like, no, it's just a fluke. No problem, Rob. Mm -hmm. But it kept growing, and mm -hmm. it continues to grow. The mm -hmm. database is updated uh, about every day. Mm -hmm. We have over 3,100 entries, and like I said, every day we're doing something. Mm -hmm. And about 3,600 sources, and an addendum to the database is the African-American Librarians Directors database, which I do with mm -hmm. Alonzo Hill. And Alonzo is a librarian in Detroit. Oh, wow. Okay. So that's like an offshoot of the Yes. Of the database. We had the mechanism. He had the data. We merged the two together. That's pretty cool. It is. So what sort of parameters do you use when people send you submissions? How do you decide what you want to put in this database? Part of it is how much information does the individual have? Okay. I know to be fact. Okay. I learned from Yvonne Giles, who is a local researcher, to yes. never say no mm -hmm. and never ignore anyone's thoughts on who's important. Yeah. So I have a list of people that I don't know much about, haven't found a lot about. The parameters are wide open. Yeah. If there's an individual that someone thinks is notable and should be in the database, we have a conversation okay. by email, by phone, or even in person. And what is it about this person that you think that others need to know? Now, those things that I haven't found more on are things like my great-great-grandfather built roads. Mm -hmm. Okay, what was your great-grandfather's name? Uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> Okay, I do a little bit of genealogy, yes. but I'm going to need a little more information. And I'm laughing now, but I don't when I'm talking to individuals. Yeah. This is important to them. And sometimes it's not important. They just, I want my whole family in there. Yeah. What did your family do? So it's a conversation. The parameters are open, but it has to be a significant contribution. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that significant contribution is dispelling a myth. Yeah. Such as Negrito, you know, mm -hmm. this idea this student had that, the jockeys descended from the Negrito. I didn't know what a Negrito was. And that's the other part of this. I'm having to educate myself and others. So I have to do a lot of research. The students said Negrito. I thought, mm -hmm. I really thought, I don't like what you're saying here. I'm not real sure yeah. what's a Negrito. So I went to the Spanish department and the anthropology department and just started working with individuals who pointed me toward resources to explain what Negrito meant. Yeah, A black Republican, I thought, Who's a black Republican? Well, they yeah. were talking about Abraham Lincoln, so I had to go and learn. Why was Abraham Lincoln called a black Republican? Mm -hmm. I have since learned there's two reasons why. Mm -hmm. One, because there are people who believe Abraham Lincoln was a black man. Wow. Two, <laughs> <laughs> two, because there are individuals who called him black Republican because of his, I wouldn't call him an anti-slavery advocate, but mm -hmm. his leniency, his idea of wanting to help the black man. Yeah. So he got this name, black Republican. Still, there are a lot of genealogists to say, you know, his grandmother, I think, was a black woman. Wow. Which she may have been. But she's not in the database because I don't, I don't yeah. have enough information for that. Yeah. It's fascinating. It is very, very fascinating. And how many entries did you say you have so far? Three, a uh, little over 3,100. Wow. And people are welcome to yes. submit entries. How, how do they get in touch with you? Well, we have a form <laughs> on the uh, database site that says, you know, if you want to submit, fill it out. But most often it's, what's that person's name? And I get an email or a phone call <laughs> or I meet someone out and say, oh, yeah, you're that person. Okay. So it's word of mouth. 
however you can get it. Throw a rock with a note on it, pigeon. Okay. I'll take it anywhere I can get it. Yeah. So give us some examples about what you have in the database or the people okay. that are included in there, some historical figures. Okay, so the centenarian librarians. And this one, I wasn't aware of it. It was brought to my attention mm -hmm. that Kentucky at the time, and this was in 2009, had three African-American women who were librarians who were over 100 years old. Now, I don't know how often that happens. That I is, really don't. Yeah. So I did an entry for them, and I, I think we actually did an article. I'm getting my articles and my entries mm -hmm. mixed up because, you know, it's been about, what, going on 15 years now. And so I started to look at them, and one of them was Della Jones, who was mm -hmm. the aunt of House of Representative Reginald Meeks from Louisville, mm -hmm. Eliza Gleason Atkins, and I won't tell you a little more about her in just yeah. a second, and Ruth Hill Jones. And Ruth Hill Jones uh, was the daughter of a prominent minister, mm -hmm. but Ruth Hill Jones died in 2013. She was 106 years old, and she was the oldest of these three. Eliza Gleason died on her birthday. She was 100 years old. She's actually from North Carolina. And Della Jones died in 2009. Both she and Eliza Gleason died the same year. But the reason I want to come back to Eliza Gleason is because now she came to Kentucky from North Carolina, and she was the first librarian at the Louisville Municipal College. Mm -hmm. She would leave the college after establishing these classes for African-American librarians because the state was requiring librarians to have certification. Yeah. And for African-Americans, it was at the Western Branch in Louisville in conjunction with the Municipal College. And K-State kind of tried, but they let it go because mm -hmm. it just it wasn't working for them. So this was how the African-American librarians got their training. She left Kentucky, ends up going to get her Ph.D. She's the first African-American to get a Ph.D. in librarianship. She got it in Chicago. She goes to Atlanta because the gentleman who was heading up Atlanta University was also from Kentucky. Mm -hmm. She helps them establish the library school, and she becomes the first African-American library director, wow. Eliza Gleason. She later comes back to Kentucky. Her daughter is a professor at the University of Louisville. She still is. Wow. So she's living in Louisville when she dies on her birthday. Mm. Wow, what an incredible contribution to our profession. Yes. And you said also Ruth Hill Jones and... Della M. Lewis Jones. The, yeah. the two women were not related. Yeah. Della Lewis Jones was a teacher. Mm -hmm. And the way she became a librarian, and this happened with a lot of African-American women, when they integrated to schools yes. and they didn't want the African-American teachers necessarily mm -hmm. teaching, they made them librarians. Oh, wow. Yes, like librarians are second-class citizens or something. But anyway, the whole thing with segregation, that's how she became a librarian, and she was at Owen County High School. Wow. And who else? Who else was added into the database? Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. We also have, let's save the shoes for last. David Moore. David Moore was from Lexington, Kentucky. He was a featherweight boxer. And David Moore was killed in the ring in 1963 when he was boxing against a Timinio Sugar Ramos, who was a Cuban boxer. Mm -hmm. He actually lived in Mexico City. It was the 10th round of their fight, and the fight took place in California. And David didn't die in the ring. He actually got up, he gave an interview, he went to the dressing room, he was having a headache, they took him to the hospital, and he died. Mm -hmm. And so there was this whole movement of stopping boxing. It was too violent. Yes. And it, at that time, he was about the 216th person mm -hmm. to die from boxing. He was actually second boxing death in 1963. And the governor of California even said, you know, boxing is a violent sport. We need to stop this boxing. Mm -hmm. And the song that I mentioned. Yeah, by Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan, yeah. yeah. It was a protest who song. The, yeah, Who Killed David Moore. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's on YouTube. Oh, Actually, yeah. the fight itself is on YouTube as well. Yeah. Oh, because wow. this was the beginning of televising boxing matches. But David Moore had about 
I'd have to check my notes. But he had a lot of children. I think he had about seven children. Well, let me say his mother was from Lexington. Mm -hmm. His father was from Ohio. So they lived between Ohio and Lexington. And he was the only child born in Lexington. Mm -hmm. The others were born in Ohio. He had all these children. He died. Ramos felt awful. You know, Mm -hmm. it wasn't his intent to demolish the man. It was just a boxing match. And he ended up dying. Mm -hmm. And so they have this park in Springfield, Ohio, as well as the statue of David Moore. And Ramos actually came back to the U.S. for the dedication. Mm -hmm. But... Yeah. You know, I never realized that song was actually about somebody from Lexington. Like most that, people don't. Yeah, that's like, that was when you were emailing us back and forth. We were I, would, I read that and I was like, what? Yes. Really? Lexington. Let me say Kentucky. Here's the thing about NKAA. Even though the focus is African American, mm-hmm. let me say that there are wonderful, wonderful years and centuries of history right here in Kentucky that mm-hmm. we don't know about. Oh, yes. My passion happens to be African-Americans. Mm-hmm. There is much more, so yes. much more. Um, since doing this database, I used to not talk a lot about being from Kentucky, especially when I went to library conferences. Mm-hmm. And you would say Kentucky, and people's face would gaze over like, <laughs> where? You know, I'm saying Kentucky. Oh, Tennessee. No, Kentucky. It's a yeah. real state. But doing this database, it made me realize how much I didn't know, mm-hmm. how much pride I should have in this yes. state. Because it's as much my state as it is anybody's. Mm-hmm. So I talk more about Kentucky and not just African Americans. We do wonderful things here. Mm-hmm. If we were from Texas, and people have heard me say this before, people from Texas brag when the sun comes up. <laughs> they brag when the sun goes down. We don't brag enough about our state. We don't. Yeah. We don't. We don't. Yeah. I got off track again, didn't I? No problem. <laughs> no, we, we like talking Kentucky. We've so. got beautiful history here. We, we do. do. We've okay. made so many contributions to this world as much as anybody that we just don't. We don't grasp it and hug it and tell people about it. Another um, subject that you had told us about Mm -hmm. were the African-American prisoners, the the shoemakers, that contributed so much to the industry. I was flabbergasted. Fourth in the nation for prison-made shoes for a period there. The whole idea of Mm -hmm. shoes and African-Americans, this was a later entry. The first entries talked about shoemakers, Mm -hmm. African-American shoemakers. It was a trade that was taught to the slaves. Um, after slavery, it was an occupation, especially during the Depression, during mm-hmm. the 1930s. We had a lot of shoe markets. The country as a whole had people who were polishing shoes, making shoes, refurbishing shoes, mm-hmm. the shoe work, you know, at the Wahoo. So when I was looking at this entry, I thought, mm, sometimes I doubt myself. Yeah. I thought, this can't quite be right. I've never heard this before. Somebody would have said something mm-hmm. if we were doing this much in terms of prison-made shoes. As it turns out... Between 1880 and about 1920, mm-hmm. Kentucky prisoners made more shoes than probably most other state, most other states mm-hmm. where they had prisoners making shoes. We were fourth. Approximately three fifths to four fifths of those individuals were at the Kentucky State Reformatory in Frankfort and in Eddyville, both of them. And what happened was the prisons would lease. I'm sorry. The yeah, the prisons would mm-hmm. lease the prisons. Mm-hmm. if that makes sense. And this was due to a law that stopped them from leasing the prisoners, where they would send a bunch of prisoners off to work, work on somebody's land. Yeah. yeah, so it changed to where they would bring the factory inside of the prison. Okay. The prison. But the companies that were leasing the prisons pretty much had to say so about what happened to the prisoners. Mm-hmm. So you had a lot of mistreatment and deaths and starvation and all kinds of crazy things happening because they were, it was thought they weren't working hard enough to you know maximize the profits. Yeah. 
So you had these individuals, you had uh, as well as guards who had gotten their jobs through favors, okay. political favors. You know, the right person gets into the governor's office. Hey, you got a job as a guard at the prison. Okay. So it was political favors. It was leasing out the prison and shoemaking. We were late to the game. We didn't get there until the 1880s. Mm-hmm. Other states were there before. And it really took off probably around 1890, 1900s, where Kentucky was fourth. So who's making money from these shoes? The state of Kentucky, mm-hmm. the warden who leased the prison, the company who actually was um, had pretty much control of the prison. And there's a picture in the Kentucky Historical Society digital collection of the prison. I think I think it was the one in Frankfurt. Okay. Yeah, it was big business. Wow. Big business. It didn't compare to some of the other industries, smaller industries that were in the prisons. They pretty much didn't exist at the time Mm -hmm. that those shoes were were at the top of the list. So chair making, broom making, uh, shirt making. And Mm -hmm. shirt making is what eventually uh, took over after the whole shoe industry died down. Mm -hmm. And the reason, one of the things that happened with Kentucky, we're great at politics. (laughs) (laughs) So the um, Kentucky wardens, and probably the governor had a hand in this too, convinced other states that when they bought these shoes from Kentucky, Uh the Kentucky companies that had leased the prisons, there was no stamp anywhere on the shoe that said, this shoe was made by prisoners in Kentucky. Yeah. And so other states were like, wait a minute, you know, you're killing a competition here. Or it's an unfair competition. Mm-hmm. You've, you've got these shoes that doesn't say they're made in the prisons. You flood in the market. We don't want it. So you had states starting to push back. Okay. Or you had the industries in those states starting to push back. We don't want these Kentucky shoes. we got our own prison. we got our own shoemakers. We don't have to sell these Kentucky yeah. shoes. And the majority of the shoes were sold outside of Kentucky. Okay. Wow. Yeah, that was. I thought that was a fascinating piece of information. <laughs> that one that. took a long time too. Wow, a lot of research. Yeah. So, did you do that research I did. yourself, or did somebody else? Uh, no, I did all the okay. research wow. and on those types of entries. Mm-hmm. When we first started out at NKAA, it was like a paragraph, mm-hmm. and people would ask for more, especially the college students and the K through twelve students. Mm-hmm. I need more sources because we we weren't putting that much in. We put in one source in the paragraph. We want more, and I was yeah. like, oh. That's not what I'd planned to do here. So we made them a little longer and a little longer. So Uh now I've started doing actual, what I call articles. And let me say, I don't do this on my own. Mm -hmm. Rob Aiken is the other half of this. He's been with it from the beginning. Eric Wegg, W-E-I-G, he's Mm -hmm. also a librarian. He's the one who has taken over because the person before moved on, got another job, Mm -hmm. who helped move it to the Omeka platform. Now what's happened since we moved it from... um, where it was, and I don't know tech talk. <laughs> so we moved it to Mecca, and now we're this one year from August to August, August mm-hmm. 2017 to 2018, we've got 120,000 additional hits per year. Wow. So we're over 300,000 hits a year mm-hmm. now with this database. The other individual who just started from a presentation that I did with the Lexington Public Library, okay. her name is Angelica Miller. She just happened to be at the presentation, uh-huh. and she said, can I volunteer? And I thought, no, you can volunteer. You are the volunteer. <laughs> so she has actually written about 10 entries now, I think. Yeah. She does the research, and sometimes, especially when you're talking about African-American history, mm-hmm. you have to call people on the phone. You have to go meet people in person. Yeah. It's just a whole different interface when you're talking about doing research mm-hmm. and she's done a really excellent job yeah so she's working on an entry and the other entry that I'm working on right now and my whole point for starting down this road was the entries are now many articles sometimes yeah so they're actual entries into kind of like an encyclopedia 
I wouldn't I, call it an encyclopedia because there is a Kentucky African American encyclopedia. Okay. We don't want to mix up the two. All right. But yeah. 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 So that's that's incredible. And I think a lot of people have a vested interest in this database being successful. Yes, um, you know, they especially do. a local Kentuckian. So Yes. I get so, a lot of help from a lot of researchers. Yeah from all over Kentucky, from all over the United States, actually. And we've even got some international help as well. Oh, sure. From the Philippines, from Germany, from England. Yeah. And these are Kentucky African-Americans who have gone to those areas and done things. Yeah, that's incredible. Well, thank you so much for your contribution to um, preserving the history of Kentucky. And thank you so much for talking with us today on on our podcast. Uh, wish you success. And um, again, that database is the Notable Kentucky African Americans database. It's very helpful. So visit that website. Um, and if you have any other questions, you can always email us through our e-librarian service. Thanks, Renette. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Tales from the Kentucky Room, a podcast brought to you by the Central Library's Kentucky Room staff at the Lexington Public Library. If you enjoyed listening, please take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. If you have any questions about local history or genealogy research, you can visit us in the Kentucky Room to use our collection and newspaper microfilm, or you can email us at elibrarian at lexpublib.org. That's elibrarian at lexpublib.org. I'm Miriam, and we'll be back with another trip down Lexington's memory lane.